Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the privilege of speaking with Jennifer Heil. One of the most successful freestyle skiers of all time, she has won Olympic gold and silver medals in the sport of mogul skiing, as well as being a four-time world champion and five-time overall World Cup champion. Beyond sport, she is a celebrated ambassador of community service who has dedicated time and energy to the Because I Am a Girl initiative, where at the age of 26, she donated 25000 of her own money and accepted the challenge of raising $1 million to help women rise up out of poverty. She is also a co-founder of the B210 Foundation, dedicated to supporting many Canadian Olympians, but also reshaping how athletes achieve their true potential. At the heart of her invitation to leave your mark is that Jen is an exceptional person who has transcended life as a performance athlete, found her stride as a mother of two amazing boys, and reinvented herself in the world of business. She has already left an indelible mark on the world. What lies ahead, I am certain, will be even more impressive. Welcome, Jen. Oh, thanks, Scotty. <laughs> it's nice <laughs> to see you. It's kind of cool that uh, our podcast brings us, or my podcast brings us together. Um, we don't talk that often anymore. It's almost like we used to talk all the time. <laughs> now yeah. we see each other very, very intermittently here and there. But it feels like old times. Every time I see you, it just, yeah, it goes right back to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> How are you these days? Everything's good? Yeah, everything's great. Um, busy with two little ones and balancing, you know, getting it out the door in the morning to work. And um, yeah, just I, I don't actually believe in balance. Well, I don't believe in short term balance. It's more a, a midterm I strive for. But no, I'm feeling very blessed. My life is very full. That's awesome. Well, I'll start with an easy question. I wanted to know from you when you were skiing what your favorite race course was. Oh, my favorite course. So that one's easy. It was Inuashiro, Japan. Wow. It was the steepest course in the world by a mile, uh, like 37 degrees going down the pitch. Uh, I watched um, male uh, competitors cry at the top of the hill um, from being so af afraid of the jump and frustrated. It was like basically jumping off a cliff on that top jump. You couldn't see the landing. <clears throat> it was quite terrifying, but... Um, for me as a skier, technically, I, I was very strong. And so I just loved the challenge. And I would say in all my races over 10 years, that was the closest I got to perfection um, in that run. And it was quite a it was quite a interesting experience. Um, and it was all mental. And it all happened at the top of the hill before I even pushed out of the gate. And it was um, by far by far my best run that, you know, could have been competitive on the men's side as well that day. Wow, that's really cool. I would not have, I would have not thought that knowing all the things I knew about you coming in. So I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. I thought you were going to tell me Deer Valley and stuff and uh, some of the races. Second favorite, second favorite, because it was, it was, it was the second hardest, um, but more from a fitness level. And so we had done so much work together and I was so confident um, in my physical abilities because of all the time we put in that I, I'd like to, um, I guess I could say show it off on that course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to circle back to the hard, easy part uh, a little bit later in our conversation. I want to start by uh, growing up in Spruce Grove. What, um, what was life like there? Did, was it uh, simple? Was it complicated? Was, uh, what was life all about when, for Jen when she was a kid? Yeah, you know, I look back on on my childhood and and I'm now working in sport and specifically, you know, uh, have a gender equity file. So I've reflected a lot on my own childhood and kind of the elements that went into it 
so that I didn't have the barriers that many girls have in sport. Um, the social barriers, the norms. Um, and I just, I, I had tremendous opportunity. It was a simple upbringing. It was a wonderful childhood. I grew up in a community where doing sports was a way of life and it was as common for the girls as it was for the boys. Life revolved around school sports teams. It wasn't about, you know, this over-specialization, I'm going to be a pro. It was, let's go out and let's be a team. Let's have some fun. Everybody participates. Be your best. Try your best for everyone. Um, But it was just a different focus and I just had so much joy to be active um, with my friends and, and with my family. And, you know, I, I had a dream to be an Olympian from quite young on, but it was kind of in the backseat to those daily experiences. Mom, was that your driven by mom and dad or by, by one more uniquely than the other? Um, so I would say um, my athletic abilities probably mainly come from my mom. She's just like a power pack and um, an incredible golfer. Um, she never put a lot of focus on it for herself. She always focused on family. So, you know, she was 100% committed to taking us where we needed to go. And then dad brought a really unique perspective in that he was, um, he was doing visualization, meditation, yoga, way before any of that was cool and mainstream. And so he really taught me um, the mental aspect as a young child. And I learned how to visualize you know, from the age of 10 and when I was at swim club. And if I didn't visualize before a race, I felt lost. So I started visualizing from a very young age. So he instilled a lot of um, those skills that are unique and needed as an elite athlete. Um, And both my parents um, had a very high bar for effort. And so, um, you know, if it was unacceptable not to do your best on anything. And so that also was an important element um, to becoming an Olympian. Wow. When you uh, look back, I know that you started out sort of your Olympic dream with swimming to a degree, and then that sort of, you never grew lengthwise. (laughs) (laughs) So that became less achievable. But um, the shift into, into skiing, I mean, skiing was part of your life. When did uh, you sort of shift from being um, somebody who was skiing to somebody who was going to be competitively, um, you know, focused for, for, for a long time to come, so to speak? Well, for, you know, this is a podcast. So um, just to give some color, I am five foot three, um, generally not <laughs> lar- large enough for a world-class swimming career. Uh, but <laughs> swimming was my first love. I started in the community to this day. You know, I met um, some of my best friends as, as a six-year-old on the side of the pool. Um, so it had a really big part of my life. It taught me how to work hard and discipline it um you know can really be a grind but I I love the reward in in racing and so you know how I evolved as an athlete from swimming it was I'm actually what we don't see that often I was a true multi-sport athlete I did uh, long uh, long distance running track and field volleyball basketball at school uh, swimming dance gymnastics And then at nine, I started skiing in Edmonton, which is not really, you know, where you think (laughs) you can grow talent um, on a hill in Edmonton. Um, And it was just one of many sports I did. I had skied with my family growing up. My dad loved to ski, so I already knew how to ski. And it remained one of many, many sports I did. 
um, it became more serious because we had to drive um, outside of Edmonton. So we would drive eight hours every weekend um, so I could ski on the Alberta ski team. And so with that came an extra layer of commitment. And over time, I let the other sports go. Um, but I swam until I was 16 years old and I was virtually, I was on the national development team at that time. So um, we know from research that, you know, athletes and people are better off to do different activities, that whole idea around balance, but our system doesn't promote it anymore. Um, we mm-hmm. get kids super focused on one sport, burnout, injury. Um, and yeah, I was, I was the perfect case of what we should be doing, but the mm-hmm. system is pretty tough to navigate now. When you look back, um, and your mom and dad now, and now that you're a mom yourself, do you see uh, see those commitments, the eight-hour drives uh, and all that kind of stuff in a different light? Well, I'm definitely trying to stream my children into sports that I want to take part in. <laughs> that aren't eight hours away. <laughs> yeah, that aren't eight. Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild. Um, and, and I would just say becoming a parent as a whole, I mean, it's um, – so much respect for my parents and everything they gave me and, you know, their unconditional love and commitment, despite both of them, you know, having careers and it's not an easy thing to do. And then you layer on the different commitments and sport obviously is a huge commitment for any family in terms of time and money. So we'll see where it all goes. Um, for me, I just had a, the joy of movement and, um, I still to this day have that. And, you know, much of what we do as a family is around active living, riding our bikes, hiking, um, learning how to swim. We were just all out surfing last weekend um, and the kids wanted to give it a try. And that's all I want for my kids. They decide how far they take it. But the values of um, what my parents taught me around effort and, and, um, and trying and that's, you know, sport is a means to test that. So for sure, mm-hmm. I'll open the doors for them. That's awesome. Um, you started cause you were not my paths crossed when you, uh, we're dealing with some injury issues. Um, but I don't think I've ever actually talked to you about the genesis of that and when it all started. Um, it's funny when I look back at that, never having had that conversation with you, but when did you really start having difficulty and pain and start dealing with the injury side of your life? Um, I know that things came to a head in Salt Lake, but when would it, when did it all start and sort of how? Yeah, well, I mean, mogul skiing is a pretty intense sport. Um, you know, uh, at an elite level, you're skiing up to three or four moguls per second. So there's tremendous pressure and demands on the body. And then, you know, um, learning tricks and the repetition of jumps and landings. And so, um, especially in those days, there wasn't the level of sophistication or training and preparing athletes um, to manage that load. And so um, I started to have pain as probably a 15-year-old in my shins, which just felt like really tight muscles um, and was very painful, um, but didn't, you know, was quite managed. Um, And then as I came up through the levels quite quickly and I was quite young and hadn't fully, you know, built the foundation, then the wheels kind of fell off. Um, And so I I was in tremendous pain uh, the year of um, my first Olympics. I couldn't even really ski a full run in training. I was trying to save 
my body and my legs for competition, which is not the best way to prepare or, or become your best. And so that's where visualization came a critical part. I would side slip the course and close my eyes and imagine myself skiing through the tricky section and try and memorize the course um, through my mind. And then I just got to the point where it wasn't fun. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to meet my objectives of trying to win an Olympic medal. Um, and there's a few other things going on behind the scenes um, in terms of the team and the organization. And I just, I didn't, I didn't want that path. And so I, I actually probably came quite close to looking at going to school full time and, and quitting my career before it really started. Really? Wow. I never do that about, uh, about you through conversation. What, what was the moment or what was that conversation like when you sort of contemplated that and how did you not let go? Um, that's a good question. I don't remember the specific moment. I would say the reason I didn't let go is because I had, so on one side, I had a team, um, a lot of pressure from the team saying I had to do it, you know, the, the normal way. Um, I had to show up for training camp, even though I could hardly walk, I had to get back on my skis. I just had to, you know, work harder, try harder, but I had hit that wall and I knew that trying harder, doing the same thing wasn't the answer. Um, and I was, the moment was knowing that I had people that believed in me and that saw a different pathway. And that was through JD Miller and Dominic Oche and their support gave me the strength to say, okay, I can look at this creatively. I have enough power and agency to build a plan here. That's right for me, which is not an easy thing to do in an organized sport. And that kind of started the path to what eventually became B210, but um, without those two people in my life, I'm, I'm not sure where I would have ended up. When you took um, that leap of faith to come to Montreal, um, you know, I was talking to Tessa Virtue a little while ago about um, the moment she was uh, contemplating going to uh, become a dancer and uh, had to move away from home and she was quite young uh, and how challenging that was and stuff. And these moments where you have to sort of move away from your um, security blanket of home and stuff and go somewhere else and, and trust what, what was that like for you? The, the, the demand for you to sort of accept that you couldn't solve it yourself and then you were going to go somewhere and take that leap of faith. Um, well, moving to Montreal was a very exciting time and it was super positive and it was kind of, um, it, it was it was a big adventure and there was a relief to it. But I think that's because I had been leaving home on a regular basis since 14. That was my harder time to, to leave on the Alberta team every weekend. Um, luckily, I had an older sister. So I had... I had been coming and going from home for, you know, almost four years and, and learning to live out of a suitcase. And so coming to Montreal was a bit of an extension of that experience. So that didn't even phase me. I was just, um, I was just excited. Um, and it was, you know, the opportunity to work with uh, yourself and other world-class um, specialists and, you know, to, to end up in the big city of Montreal with the amazing restaurants and shopping. And it was just, it was awesome. It was really um, an exciting time in my life. And, um, and Montreal became my home after that. Um, I, I just felt so comfortable there and happy there. Well, when did you um, feel like as things were progressing there that you were on the right path? 
Um, I think it comes back to knowing I was on the wrong path and that I had to be willing to take a risk. And so I did have fear around it. I remember um, the first time I went to you know, a real <laughs> training session and it was like, okay, now we're going to do lunges. And I'm like, okay, so how much weight? No weight. And I'm just like, excuse me? Like I'm an Olympian. How am I going to be world-class when I'm sitting here lunging without any weight? How am I going to build my muscles and the strength I need? And it was just kind of like, you know, I was very perplexed at what I had signed up for, but um, I committed to it because I knew I had great people and, and a great team and, you know, progress was slow, but the little things were rewarding and, you know, learning how to move better was critical. And I started to be educated and ask a lot of questions as to why we were doing it. So I could buy into the process. And then I just started to feel the difference. And, um, it is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I took almost two years off of competitive skiing. I mean, 18 months. And then I came back and I was literally skiing better than ever in my life before. And so it was just very obvious to me that, you know, before I had even raced, but just back on the skis that it was the right decision. Mm. When you look back on that time and the time running up to Torino, um, what's the most rewarding element of the process you went through to, to win a gold medal? If you can summarize it in, in one or two things. Sorry, you cut out a little bit. What was the um, most rewarding? What was the most rewarding thing about about the process of getting to and winning that gold medal? When you look back on it, were there one or two things that you look back at the process you went through that you feel was most valuable to you as a person? Hmm, that's a good question. I've never really been asked that before. I can tell you that I would say the whole process was rewarding. It was. Um, having confidence in yourself and your decisions, um, your instincts to know that that was the right decision. And it was a really um, important lesson to trust yourself um, and what's possible when you build the right team with the right people. And I think what was so amazing about my team was um, that it, it was egoless. It was all process driven. It was um, this joy of learning. Um, everyone had the joy of their own craft and that passion and that energy was there every single day. So it, it literally was every day that was rewarding because we had the right dynamics and the right ingredients and the outcome of that. Like when I think back to those years, it was, um, Oh gosh, it was just amazing. Like I would stand on top of the hill and I would, I just felt powerful. Isn't necessarily the right word, but I just felt, um, I just, it was like this perfect alignment of my mind, my body, my, my technical skiing. And it was just like, let's go and create magic. And let's, there was that confidence that came with it, but just this opportunity to keep taking it to the next level. And that's where my thrill was. And I got to show up and, and do that every weekend because, you know, we had done the, the hard work. Mm -hmm. When you, when you won the gold medal, when you look back on that, what, what changed in you bef like after when, when you look back where, who were you before you won it? And who, mm, who were confidence you really? Yeah. You just became more confident. Well, I mean, I was, yeah. I mean, I was a nine year old dreaming of winning an Olympic medal and I structured my whole life. Um, you know, I said skiing took a back kind of the back seat or others like it kind of evolved. Um, 
but it was always there. And so, you know, I made, I made really big commitment to, to leave junior high and high school and to, you know, um, I was afraid to leave home and to be on the road and to have to find my way as a young, as a young kid. And, um, you know, it, I wouldn't call them sacrifices. They were choices. Um, and so I think the biggest thing was just, I had had this big vision for myself and I had worked so hard to it. And it was just winning that medal. I remember standing at the bottom of the hill, knowing that I had won go, go, going, I can't believe this actually happened. It was just this understanding of possibility. Like mm. you vision for it. Everyone says dream big. Um, but that's scary. And then to see that the process led to the outcome, it was just like, wow, I can, I can do this in many other places in my life and it, it, it can work. And, mm. and sometimes it won't, but just to have that confidence in the process and the plan and this belief in possibility um, was something I carry with me. Yeah, it's beautiful to hear you say that about process because I think that's the one key to really a fulfilling success whenever you achieve something is that you actually were connected to the process that you went through rather than just achieving the goal, so to speak, uh, or getting the gold medal and then not necessarily knowing how you transcended or where you go next. For sure. And, and I mean, there's no doubt that achieving the goal makes the process sweeter as you reflect back. <laughs> but but um, I've had both experiences, you know, and, and um, yeah, there was just, there was just so much happiness and joy in that day to day working towards that goal. And that's a, a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. So when you um, obviously decided to do it again, that period of time was uh, commingled with the start of B210 and um, the creation of this uh, foundation that you've, you, you're an integral part of over the years. Um, what, do you, what do you see B210? At, when you look at it from your perspective, what are you most proud of or, or uh, most happy about in terms of its creation and your part in that creation? You know what? I think it's actually really similar to what I just described um, in winning the medal. To, to there was this recognition of how lucky I was to train without compromise, and we didn't really address that yet. But you know, working with yourself and others was a very expensive endeavor for a young amateur athlete that had limited sponsorship, and so we got creative through the business community to support that at including my own technical coach, we're looking at $80,000 a year. And so that was obviously a huge privilege um, and a huge opportunity. And so um, just reflecting on the magic and the opportunity of standing in that start gate being 100% ready, it was, you know, why should I be the only athlete in Canada that has access to that? And so, um, again, it was taking that vision and, and that belief and as a team, along with J.D. Miller and Dominic Goche and um, obviously yourself and so many others, it was how do we scale that? How do we test that? You don't, you don't know where it's going to go, but it's this idea of possibility. And then, again, to be committed, you know, step by step um, and be patient and, and to just keep moving it forward. And then you look back today and it's like, wow, we've helped so many athletes. We've engaged the corporate community We've been able to be, you know, a strong voice within the system, an independent voice. Um, and you think of the impact. I mean, I don't think anybody would have expected that. You know, it was just, again, 
taking a vision and, and starting to move it forward. Um, and so, yeah, there's delight, um, surprise, um, to look back and, and reflect on where we've come from and, and where we are today. Cool. I want to circle back to that thing that you talked about at the beginning about, uh, your favorite course and hard, like, why do you like hard? <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a problem of mine. Um, it would be really easy. <laughs> um, I could definitely have some more easiness in there. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the reality is, is that I wasn't a very good skier flat course. <laughs> and that was t- probably two parts. One is I was technically um, very good at managing my turns and my speed and, and, and kind of the touch of my skis on snow. And so I could stand out from others on a very technical course. And then <clears throat> the other one is I was just kind of bored on a flat course. Um, I didn't find it exciting. I didn't find it challenging. Um, and I just, um, I don't know. I've always been attracted to this idea of, can I rise up and, and meet what's in front of me? And so I get more excited when there's more things in front of me than if there's less. And, um, I would like to be able to temper that a little bit because it can be exhausting, but (laughs) I've just, I've just always liked that. And I like, I think it's because I like the mental aspect of it. I just love, I'm fascinated by how much we can achieve by having the right mindset and, you know, training our minds as much as our bodies through sport. Interesting. This is a perfect segue for a part that I do in my podcast. There's a book that I discovered a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. And uh, it's all about putting the world of astrology and numerology together. And I actually got to interview the lady who wrote the book a couple of weeks ago. So that was kind of neat. But um, you're an Aries too. And your purpose is to transform your fears and weaknesses into strengths, understanding them and sharing them with others. You're saying is mirror, mirror on the wall is who I see you or me. This is a question every Aries 2 asks every morning. They face the challenge of recognizing their own feelings and not confusing them with those of others. Remember, the world is fickle. It loves and rejects according to its needs and not our deeds. There is no way to please it, so Aries 2 must learn to please and nurture themselves. To do this, they've got to be able to bond with others without becoming dependent and to be separated without feeling abandoned or alone. Remember, family is composed not just of those with the same blood, but anyone with whom we choose to share our intimate feelings. When we bond with others, we increase our strength. Hmm. Little purpose statement. (laughs) Well, sounds nothing like me, let me tell you. Holy moly, was that quite on. (laughs) Fascinating, eh? I was reading the bottom part of that, and I was thinking about uh, JD and Dom and your family in Montreal and all that sort of stuff. Maybe, maybe, uh, gave me tingles. Cool. And I like reading those, they're fun. Yeah. Um, So you... You know, I'm curious because we've talked about it before and I know uh, I don't really need to get into the what Vancouver was all about and how it represented unless, of course, that's something you want to do. But I know that, you know, you won the silver medal there and it was not what you wanted to achieve. But I'm wondering when I go back to the B210 piece and and what we just talked about, um, did you have a sense or maybe not at the moment, but since then of of really what you you accomplished in bringing 
this whole crew and cast of characters that went to Vancouver and competed for, for medals and shared the same opportunity you had? Was there, was there a sense of pride in that moment or do you look back on it that way? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't linger there. Um, I linger for me. I love, it's kind of like meeting the challenges that I described in sport. I just, I love to push things forward and I love to create and creation is many different things. Creation is creating, you know, that perfect run. Um, creation is changing structures and systems, which we did through, you know, our approach, um, and continue to do through B210. So I have pride, um, in the fact that, of progress, I guess, and of being able to challenge the status quo, um, you know, through B210 and, and try and make sport a better place and, and try and, you know, change those models that get us stuck. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where I linger. Um, you know, it kind of comes back to the rest of the stuff is just, it's other people's opinions and it's, there's no, there's no value there because pride is a very dangerous thing. Um, mm. I found, and, you know, I've, I've needed it. You need a baseline of it. And I, and it certainly helps, um, you know, to bring the ego onto a a competition, um, and to, to use it and channel it around the intensity, but I find it gets in the way most of the time. And so Mm -hmm. I've just, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't stay there, but I, I am happy to talk about Vancouver. It was a very complicated journey and it didn't, um, it didn't end in 2010. It probably t- took me two years to come out of it and to make sense of it and, and to feel good about it. And I learned so much um, about myself uh, through that. And, and a few of the statements you read, you know, um, that you just read about Aries, um, I actually, I learned those as truths um, through that process. So um, it was a, you know, it sounds terrible to not be proud of winning a silver medal. And I, I'm tremendously proud today, but I, I felt, um, absolutely crushed in the moment. And, mm-hmm. and that was a, a long journey to reconcile that. So what, what did you learn about yourself that helped you reconcile that then in a sense? Well, one thing I, I never publicly spoke about was my fear towards the sport. And that happened when Sandra Larua from France, um, my, my fellow competitor and friend was paralyzed doing the sport. And that happened in 2000 and um, the 2011. I never, recovered. Um, I never recovered mentally. I was, I had a a lot of angst, fear. Um, I was, I was very uh, frustrated, um, to have to do that sport and to put myself in that risk every day. And so that took a huge toll on me and I never really shared that publicly. And every single time I went off a jump, I had to visualize and talk myself through the fear of it. And so it was kind of this idea of like, I was looking for, it it was very much, you know, an Olympic medal, you're validated by others and and from outside. And I had to go inside and be like, wow, Jen, you faced that fear. You, you rose up to a new level and to recognize and honor that quietly and for myself and learn how to do that. um, That was really the the part of the process um, that I had to figure out. Why did something happening to a friend of yours um, create a change in your viewpoint on a sport you'd done for so long? I'm curious. 
Well, because flipping was new. So in 2002, my first Olympics, we didn't wear helmets and we weren't allowed to do flips. And then in 2006, um, we were, I did a flip to win the Olympics. And so I couldn't even really do a flip on a trampoline in 2002. So it was a a big journey for me to learn those skills and to be so confident in 90% of the run and then um, to have to deal with that. So there always was a little bit of fear and I just didn't, I didn't start those jumps young enough to, to be comfortable. And then it, it, it made me, it, it made the risks of doing it so real, like someone you cared about and um, who was among the best in the world was paralyzed from the sport. I just had so much doubt and, and questioned, you know, is this worth pursuing? You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've already had success. Should I move on? And I couldn't really move past that. Um, and, and the consequence, it just felt so real. Well, it's interesting. I, I delve into it because I remember being at, uh, and I don't know if you remember it, but we were at a B210 event in uh, um, Banff and Laurie Skreslin was talking to the group before, I believe it was before the 2010 Olympics. And he was talking about uh, risk and, and being risk averse and fear and all this kind of stuff. And he talked about some something that happened on a big climb. And I sort of raised my hand because I found it interesting in the sense that to me, um, everything I, I said, what is, what is risk at the end of the day? Because for, for me, what you were doing, uh, to him, I said, almost seemed foolhardy because of my perspective and my experience. And to him, it seemed like a risk worth taking, so to speak. And it's, and it's funny going back to the beginning of the conversation we had today, where you talked about being on this 37 degree pitch and how some of the boys would be scared of going down there. And, you know, oh, I've I was talked, scared too. Don't yeah, get me wrong. <laughs> I talked to Eric, Eric Gay about, uh, you know, Kitz Buell and the start of that race. And, you know, in your mind, when you look back as an athlete, how, what creates the perspective of this is something I can do and this is something I can't do or that I'm taking too much risk? How do you resolve that? And how did you resolve that in your mind as an athlete? Yeah, well, it's funny. I remember that exact conversation with Laurie. And I think he was talking about, you know, having to make the choice to get over a crevasse where he took like mm-hmm. a running leap with his ice axe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was something like that. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I had the same reaction. And but yeah, to your point, many people looked at what I did and, and had a similar feeling. Um, I think it, it it again comes back to process. I mean, I had to condense the process of learning how to flip into like two years, which normally you would probably, as a development of an athlete, do that in six. Um and so it's um it's step by step. And Yes, they're, they're, I, I do like, so I'm, I like risk, but I like risk to be managed. And, and so for me, it was doing everything I could to manage that risk and to be my best. But then fear is a different thing. And fear is a total, it, it was, it was a partly, ira- it, I wouldn't say it was an irrational fear, but it, the fear took so much room in my head that it, it became its own thing. And I could, I, I, I could manage it, but I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to release it. And so it just became, um, it, it became another thing that I, I had to deal with. And so, um, yeah, there, there, it, it was, it was mental. Um, and I, and I, I didn't know how to get rid of it. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's valuable for people to hear because we all go through those things in different, in different situations, different perspectives that we all struggle with, with that, um, 
and we need to sort of overcome it in a lot of different situations. You, you retire and you go on now to becoming a mummy and, um, <laughs> describe the fear in that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to talk about fear. There is no fear until it happens and then it sets in. Uh, oh my God, there's a little person in my lap. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I know we, we laugh, we've laughed a lot over the years about uh, having kids and you guys are, you and Dom are not unlike myself and Jamie where parenthood was a bit of a, a shock in some sense. So, you know, when you've gotten over the shock now, what, what was that like becoming a mom in the beginning and, and what have you sort of overcome in terms of your maybe difficulties in the beginning and now have, have found your, your, your stride, so to speak, in it? Well, I would say it's not unlike, um, you know, what we've talked about today. It's kind of reflecting back to understand um, the different layers and, and that acceptance. And so when I look back at becoming a mother, I mean, I retired out of professional sport um, in 2011. Um, I had to finish my degree at McGill. I had to, um, and and uh, then I became a mother and then I entered the workforce and then I had a second child. So, I mean, I had five massive transitions and one of those um, alone, you know, is, is very challenging. And so I kind of, I, I did this amazing thing of condensing it, um, into a couple of years. And so it was, it was hard. I was completely disorientated, um, in terms of, you know, I just, my feet weren't really on the ground, um, in a lot of ways. And so, um, becoming a mother was, and is the greatest part of my life. And, and you often hear people say that and, um, it doesn't compare to anything else I've done, the richness and the moment and talk about challenge. I mean, my children challenge me to be my best every moment. Um, to, I'm so grateful for those deep breathing techniques I learned in sports. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it was, it was a challenging and wonderful and messy transition into motherhood. And, um, and I, I'm just so grateful to have, two very different children who make me laugh and challenge me every moment of the day. That's awesome. They're good little guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me about this transition into the workforce now. Like you uh, tell, tell me what you're doing and what is inspiring you and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, we'll write out of, uh, between children, I worked uh, at Deloitte on their innovation team in Toronto. And to me, that's what I love. It kind of comes back to, you know, what through B210 and that process of, you know, having a vision and, and challenging the system um, to, to, to um, have it materialize, I guess. And so uh, that was really a sweet spot for me. And I'm in a, in a similar space now. So I'm VP of Sport Development at Via Sport BC. And so we are an organization that was created six and a half years ago to govern the investment in amateur sport in British Columbia. And so we fund um, a big piece of the system, but then we have another arm where we're doing a lot of innovation. We're teaming up with um, industry, with universities, and we're um, 
uh, looking at social innovation. And then because we manage and govern the system, we can feed some of those outcomes um, and advances and understandings back into the system. So it's, it's a really um, unique opportunity to hold both pieces. Um, and so um, we're doing some work around, uh, well, our main, our main objectives are how to make sport more inclusive, how to make it safer, um, and how to make sure we're delivering meaning, meaningful sport experience. So sport has really, amateur and youth sport has really started to be commercialized um, over-specialized, too serious. We focus on the development of technical and physical skills. But when, if you and I were to talk about the value of sport, we would say because of social connectedness, because of confidence, because of empowerment, well, those things happen, but often by chance, if you have the right coach, um, they're not built into the experience or the system, um, in a purposeful enough way. So, all those pieces together we're doing, we have strategic initiatives um, where we're looking around social innovation and want to build capacity uh, within the system to deliver on that. So it's, uh, it's deep, complex work, system change, um, and in an area that I love and am passionate about. That's really proud of you that you're doing, doing that. And it's probably something that really um, resonates in your heart all the time because I know you have that desire to change things. Um, I know that you're, you've always been an advocate for women and women in sport. Um, tell me more about that. What is it at the center of your heart that you want to see for women and you don't feel is still where it needs to be? Yeah, I think, I think the answer to that is two parts. One is um, today 96% of girls are not meeting minimum physical activity standards. So we have a problem. Um, we have access. We have opportunities. Um, those, those are, sure, sure, there are details within that where there's not full equality, but it's, it's, it's pretty close. Um, but we have invisible barriers that we're, we're not addressing um, in as head-on of a way as I, I think we need to. So our social norms, um, you know, the stigma around you know, if you're sporty or not, um, you know, some girls hide the fact that they like to play sports from their peers because it's not cool. Um, and so all of this, I mean, it's not a sport problem, it's a social problem. And, and so I'm just, you know, that to be confident and empowered, um, you can't ignore the physical aspect. You know, you can't, if you can, feel confident in your body and your movement and your physical self, you're going to bring that into everything you do and your health, you know, is, is, is supported through that today. I train for mental health. Um, it keeps me happy. It keeps me focused. Um, it makes me feel good. That's why I'm active today. And so we know it's a critical part. And so there's so many benefits, um, to it yet we have massive massive barriers. And so I just want others to have that joy, um, in the experience and feel empowered to move and, and in whatever terms they, they want, whether that's in sport or going for a walk or a hike or whatever that may be. And so, um, so I'm committed to that. And then in terms of, of, um, sport itself, it's, it's simple. It, and it's that, um, in most cases, girls come at sport in a different way. They require different elements for it to be a positive experience. They, um, 
typically um, excel when they're coached a different way. And it's not about needing more. It's about needing something different. And the experience of sport has been, has grown. uh, I mean, originated from typically supporting males through the experience. And so we're now at a place where it's mainstream um, and we need to adapt and build that in and, and to teach our coaches what that means. And, you know, I just heard a story a few weeks ago about, you know, this woman and her dad was the coach and he was a fantastic coach and he didn't know how to support adolescent girls. And so he dropped out. And so I I wonder how many other coaches feel that same way. And so how do we equip them and build that into the experience, into the training? I want to segue off that for a second, because you've had some very extraordinary men in your life who've uh, contributed to, to you as a person and vice versa. What, what do you say to men out there about how best to support women without getting in the way of what you guys want to achieve? Oh boy, that's a question. Um, <laughs> I like to ask those questions. <laughs> so actually I think it's quite simple, the answer. Um, I have had extraordinary men in my life um, and continue to have them in my life. And so when I look at kind of what's the commonality, it's that they approach um, myself or, you know, the men in their life or whoever's in their life as an individual. And they're, they're able to adapt and support like as an athlete um, in the context of an athlete, they were able to adapt to what I need and identify that. And, you know, that was different from, you know, what, my male teammate needed and it was just how do I put the individual at the center of it and it's it's not really more complicated than that Mm. um, but it takes a level of awareness and and of probably a vulnerability as well to ask the questions and to um, kind of discover what that means and know that you might not have all the answers but you're willing to have the conversation that leads you to the answers I like that answer (laughs) when um you look back at the uh, 18-year-old Jen, the girl who came to Montreal. If you met her today, what would you say to her? <laughs> I'd probably just high-five her. She was having so much fun. I'd love, I'd love a, piece of, a piece of that energy today. Realize how much fun you're having. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think she knew. Um, no, I, I honestly, it was, it was such a cool time and... and um, I think I would actually meet her and try and take that into today. I mean, today I have a lot of responsibility as a mother, as a working mother. Um, I have a lot of passion projects I'm working on. Um, and I would just, I would take that and, and not uh, lose that enthusiasm and, and try and bring that despite, you know, all the responsibility. So I'd be happy to see her. <laughs> she, she had, she has her own wisdom to teach me today too. It's not just the other way around. That's a great answer. And sometimes, you know, it's funny. I ask that, that question quite often with my guests. And most of the time there's this kind of lament that that person needed to learn some things. But I think sometimes we don't always recognize, uh, what what that time in our life really represented at some points and how uh, if you took it all in and, and enjoyed it, uh, sometimes that's what we need to do in our own lives. Enjoy the moment a little bit more. For sure. Um, if you were to look forward, someday um, you will perish from this earth and I uh, hope it's not for a long, long time, but uh, how would you like people to remember you? 
I hate this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Don't answer it then. (laughs) Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, um, how would I like people to remember me? Just simple, you know, kind, um, um, showed up every day in a real way. Um, saw people connected with people and tried her best to contribute in this world. Awesome. Well, that's a beautiful way to finish. And you, even though you hated the question, you, <laughs> you, you pulled it out of your, you know what? So. I love a challenge, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know that. <laughs> miss the Jacob's ladder. <laughs> I, I do. I do really miss those days with you on Jacob's ladder and in the gym. Um, we had so much fun and, and your commitment and expertise and um, energy was such a big part of those years. And um, although I don't see you often, I always carry, you know, that in my heart and, and it's great to talk with you today. Vice versa. Thanks for taking the time, my dear, and get on to uh, solving the mysteries of sport and all the other things that you do <laughs> and taking care of those little boys and the big boy that, uh, that I know you're taking care of sometimes as well. Yeah. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye.